Well, you've clicked on Behind the Buzz, a Public Fits bi-weekly podcast, scrutinizing the myriad details that made up of the, the production of some of our most popular past shows. I'm Joe Kukin, producing director here at APF, joined by artistic director Anne-Marie Preff. Hi there. Hello, Anne-Marie. And together, uh, we'll be telling stories about the work that went into landing um, some of these plays on stage. This is episode number five. And today we're starting a new conversation about our early 2019 production of Bess Wall's Small Mouth Sounds, a play with very little dialogue, actually, uh, set in the woods of a small mountain town over the course of a self-improvement seminar hosted by a, a personal wellness guru, <laughs> a personal <laughs> wellness coach, uh, who does actually the majority of the speaking in the play. Am does that sound about right? Yeah, but I think you've kind of uh, you've left out a very important detail that they've six of these um, these folks who are suffering at the moment have signed up to be part of a silent retreat, which is is a different thing all in itself. Right, it's a self help retreat, but it's an actual silent retreat where they are sworn to not speak. Right, of course, of the. And that's that's important to the to the to the gimmick of the show, right? And then to the gimmick of the plot as well. Yeah, uh, and what I think makes the show work is there's all these prescribed things in 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 the play of things that they can't do. They can't drink. They can't smoke. Uh, they can go to the lake, uh, and I think they can get naked at the lake, but they can't have sex, right? Uh, there are certain things that they can't do. And what they end up doing throughout the story is they end up systematically breaking all of those rules, uh, not in, in a malicious way, but just out of need and, and uh, uh, anxiety. And that's what creates the comedy in this so particular with, play. So with that as a as sort of umbrella, uh -huh. what would you say the plot of the show is? What's the show about? It's, it's about... These six people. Well, I the plot uh, or the theme. Because Let's go with the plot. Let's start with plot. We'll get it, to theme in a okay, second. Okay, uh, the plot is about six people who are all suffering, right? And they've all decided themselves that they're going to sign up for this particular silent retreat, and, and throughout the course of the 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 story, they find out that they. Um, don't agree on issues that some of them are more connected to others, uh, particular people on the retreat than others. And, and they're being led by this guru, the silent retreat guru, who sometimes comes across as a bit of a charlatan. And then sometimes he comes across as being very authentic. So that's like one of the, the things that as a, as an audience member that I think uh, it gets questioned. And then by the end of the play, they, they come to realize that they're all very connected. You know, they're, um, they're all, um, joined together. They've had this experience and they're all they're I don't know if they're like forever changed, but they do. There is a small shift in each and every one of them. So the, the, the seminar is worthwhile at the end, would you say? I don't want to say, or you're giving away the end before we really get into it. Is it yeah, I, uh, I think it's very worthwhile. I, I do feel that all of the characters have a, a, an arc, and I do see the shifts in them, and I do see how they've all benefited from the experience. Well, we have a couple of the actors uh, from that show with us today. Let me introduce today's 
raconteurs. Uh, we're going to start, yeah, well, that's what we're calling you today. What's a raconteur? A storyteller. <laughs> oh, uh, really? Yeah. Okay. I was like, I don't know what a raconteur is. <laughs> so we'll start with you, Dina. Dina Dina Emerson is a local performer, and I, I, I think it's safe to say philanthropist. Oh, well, I don't know. A philanthropist of the arts. Oh, yes, hey, you oh, are. Oh, Dina oh, Emerson oh. is a local performer <laughs> and a philanthropist for the arts. For over 10 years, uh, Dina was singer with Cirque du Soleil's Mystere, singing in that production alone well over five thousand shows that's right yeah yes that's actually correct i i added them up myself <laughs> i can see you like ticking the boxes out really tedious job. Three thousand nine hundred twenty-two, three thousand nine hundred twenty-three. so over five thousand shows you've performed at lincoln center the brooklyn academy of music carnegie hall and you've toured the u.s uh europe and asia as a as a, as a singer um Thanks for coming, Dina. It's so, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for asking me. And I was so happy to be a part of this production. Was I right to, to think that, that uh, Small Mouse Sounds was your first APS show? Yes, that's right. And one of my first plays after leaving Cirque du Soleil and trying to um, kind of go back 25 years to my acting career, which I had been doing before, but had kind of like left alone for a really long time. So it was one of the first um, projects to try try that again, and I was so grateful to be involved in, in such an amazing, interesting production. Well, you've come back and jumped in with both feet because you've worked for now a number of companies around town mm -hmm. after jumping back in. So, and welcome back. We're glad to have you. Cirque's loss is our gain. Um, we're also joined by Eric uh, Amblad, an actor and director, and he likes to say, and I'll just say it for him this time, a proud member of the downtown Las Vegas theater community. Um, Eric is also a native Las Vegan. Aside from Small Mouse Sounds, APF audiences, you'll recognize Eric from his roles in The Elephant Man uh, and Incognito. He received some early training here in Vegas from the Rainbow Company Youth Theater and then went on to earn a degree from a small uh, East Coast college, Harvard University. Hey, buddy. <laughs> Hi. Oh, no, please continue to tell me about myself. This is not at all uncomfortable to hear. <laughs> and, Eric, and Eric, as I mentioned about Dina, Dina has, has worked all over town. You've also uh, worked with a number of, of local uh, theaters here in town. You, for a while, were the artistic director when they were still called Cockroach Theater Company. Um, during some of their more formative experimental years, I would, I would venture to say. Well, uh I, I felt like the turning point in Cockroach and also in downtown is I got to be the artistic director when they moved into the Art Square Theater, which at the time made them the first resident downtown theater. And from that moment, things have exploded. I've been doing theater downtown since 2005. And so I'm kind of an institutional memory <laughs> about yeah. what's going on down here. Sure. And uh, just to see what's happened in the last eight years has been remarkable and it's made me very proud. And that's why I say I'm very proud to be a part of this community because to me, just these few square blocks in this uh, desert town uh, is some of the most vibrant theater, like I think around the country. No, yeah. No, no. Well, no, I, I, oh, I, I, I agree. And I, I hope it continues someday. Which is why, um, I mean, like I remember you, when I was artistic director, you at APF came in, 
I did. Yeah. <laughs> and I, yeah, I came into the theater and I kind of pricked Eric's brain. I was like, so what is it that I have to do in order to start a theater company? And you were very gracious with all of your advice and, and you didn't seem threatened at all. And I don't think you were threatened because you were very supportive from the, from day one. For, uh, for our community to work, we've got to have a community. Like before we're competing with each other, we've got to make sure that, that audiences know there's great theater happening in Las Vegas. Which it is. Uh, I also know that the second time you came into that theater, you brought Joe. And uh, Joe mentioned that I got some early training at Rainbow Company. I got that early training from Joe. <laughs> and uh, he he terrorized me when I was in seventh grade. So I had some serious like panic when he <laughs> walked in. Turns out that he's a teddy bear. Yes, and, a uh, giant fuzzy teddy bear. My, <laughs> Just a lovely human being. Oh, good lord! Uh, and it's been, uh, it's been honestly, it's been one of my great pleasures to be able to support and uh, work with APF for a significant amount of that time. Certainly, I've been a fan the entire time. So. Let, let me let me shift gears for just a second. At this point, I just want to say it's, I think it's important to point out as we're talking about all of our our work here. It's important to point out that that Small Mouth Sounds was actually not a joint. Uh, directing project like Wit or some of the past shows that we've done at APF. It was actually helmed totally by you, Emery. You were the sole director credited on that show. And it kind of is kind of terrified you at first, didn't it? You want Absolutely to talk about that a little me. bit? What was it about? Actually, I was in the backyard with Eric and another lovely lady in the theater community, Jamie Carvelli. And I was thinking about doing another production, and Eric and Jamie challenged me. They were like, well, what show really scares you? And I said, Small Mouth Sounds. And Eric and Jamie said, well, that's the show that you should do. <laughs> and the reason why it was terrifying is because 75% of the, of the story is in silence. And I had never crafted uh, a show like this before. And I, I did have a, a, a friend who was in the original pr production at Ars Nova, who's a dear friend of mine. And so I spent much time on the phone expressing my concerns uh, prior to the first day of rehearsal. Uh, but yes, it was a very, very scary project for me. And I can elaborate some of the reasons why, if, sure. if you'd like. Um, my concern was that the physical storytelling would not be clear to the audience. It would just, uh, what Bess has done in her text is she's laid out very specific uh, storytelling points that we have to hit, but they have to be done through movement, through gesture, through connection, through facial expressions, through breath. And, and I was afraid that we were gonna create a bunch of inside jokes that only made sense to our cast. That was one concern of mine. I was also afraid that the cast members would um, indicate, that's, uh, that's a, a theatrical term, where, where they would, uh, it would appear as if they were overacting. Well, which is funny because you had originally thought of putting everybody in whiteface like mimes and <laughs> that giving is them not striped, true. striped shirts. <laughs> And gloves so that they could do the, the in a box, trapped in a box routine. That is a lie. That's but a lie. funny you would say that because there was a, a, a wonderful man who had some actual clown training who came to the auditions. And he um, his audition was very compelling, but it was more heightened. His physicality was more heightened. Mm -hmm. And he was also very believable. 
And I thought, well, that is a direction as, as a theater director that I could take it in. But that's not really how I saw the show. I saw the show really rooted in the type of movement that if you and I went on a silent retreat, that um, the... Um, the actors would re be replicating that type of physicality. So a sense of naturalism, almost naturalism, a, a realism, realism in that moment. Yes, yes. Was that strange for you, Dina? I find, I think, is there something ironic about a woman with your level of vocal training singing 5,000 shows for Cirque du Soleil? And and I, I, the last time I saw you on stage, you were performing German opera, for crying out loud. Do, do was there some irony in someone with that amount of vocal training being asked to shut the hell up and, and not speak? Definitely irony, but also for me, like, in, incredible delight because I studied a lot of physical theater when I was younger. And I feel like I've always been a person that is kind of like a, well, my mentor is Meredith Monk and she is a, like vocal director, choreographer, dancer. Like she is a total voice and body person. Yeah. And that's always how I've looked at my approach to theater as well. So being able to just focus on a, a purely physical task to me, a physical, emotional our relationships, all the things we, that we did was like a gift. I felt like it was a gift. Can you tell me a little bit about your character in, in the show? Since we're going to be talking about your work, we should probably know what it is you were trying sure, to portray. Yeah. So my character, um, I played a, a woman named Judy who was um, early 50s or so, and she has cancer. And my character was also the only one in a couple uh, with another woman, and we came together as a couple. And my partner in the play, um, played by Valerie Bernstein, was um, is a little more earthy and more, she's the one that really wanted to go to the retreat. Um, and I came partially just to, to be with her, but also hoping perhaps I would find something because I, the way that I approached it was that I was terminal and I did not have a good chance at a good outcome for the cancer. And I was probably looking at my own death. And so uh, that was a very interesting part of the process for me is like, so also as a skeptic, both myself and the character are skeptical of new age things and whatnot. And so it was very interesting to go through a process where I did in fact get something out of it. By the end, it, there was a huge transformation for the character. And uh, she did find something very special and her relationship was renewed and she found peace or relationships with people she would never have met otherwise. And so, um, yeah, it was very, there's a lot, a lot there. Well, and, and it's funny too, because when I think of your character, and when I think of the show, we're going to talk about you, you in a second, Eric, when, when I, when I think about the show in general, we talk about a mostly silent play, but I just remember the importance of sound in that play. Not just the silences and Emory, you mentioned the breath, but I was taken by a moment that your character has, Dina, that you created on stage, where she just sort of coos, finds a, a sound and, and, and vocalizes into the void and trying to calm herself down and, with breath. Do you, do you remember that yeah, moment? Yeah, I remember that very well. And that's in the script but it doesn't say what that sound what is. What that noise is, yeah. Like. And I remember you not yeah. struggling so, we, so we much, but really enjoying things, the, but the discovery. Yeah. I think because you're just such an adept vocalist, that moment 
it wasn't hard for you to find. You know, we talked about it for a minute or two, and then you were off and running with that. And it was one of the most touching moments in in the show. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So, well, especially because we don't, we hear the teacher's voice, but we don't see him, and then we see the characters, but we don't hear them. With one exception, which I'm sure you'll talk about later, the long monologue. But mostly, we don't hear anyone's voice, and so when you do hear a sound. Coming out of a human being, it's like very powerful. Well, I, I just want to say about that moment, about that um, as an audience member, and I saw, you know, I saw every every show as I do. Um, I, I just remember sitting in silence for so long, and you have had in that moment, you've had a fight with your significant other. You come back to the room in order to calm yourself. You you find this sound, and it almost became like a a song. There wasn't a melody to it, but it was just this. Do you remember the sound you made? I want to hear it. Oof. It was like a kind of a, an awe, like a breathy. It was like, oh, oh, something like that. And and you took it, what, what I found remarkable, is it started out very legato, this oh kind of sound. And by the end, it was just, oh, oh, oh. You, you were doing this sort of staccato rhythm thing that calmed you down. And I just thought it was mesmerizing. Wow, how did, how did you get you. there? Well, we tried a few different things uh, in rehearsal and... Um, Anne-Marie gave me feedback and then we tried different things. I don't know, it just sort of became that. And then the tempo change you were talking about happened as part of it too. So that it wasn't just, um, too repetitive that it it actually had its own beginning, middle and end, um, as the, the energy of the thing change, you know. But you weren't the, so you weren't the only one. Then a few people speak. They break the rules, as Amory said earlier. They speak out of turn. They they accidentally talk uh, to each other. And Eric, you had the, I'm going to say unenviable, maybe enviable task of providing the vast majority <laughs> of the dialogue. But off stage, you were you were actually off stage, connected to a microphone to the cast, and you had a camera. You could see the action. But you had created a character. That gave them all of their instructions, gave them all of their lessons, and then uh, opened the play actually with a very long story about a frog. Uh, what struck me about that, what struck me about that character, was the accent that you chose. Can you can you talk a little bit about finding that accent that that uh, um, you decided to use and how you went about getting there? Uh, yeah, uh, in fact, finding that voice I think was part of the reason why I boondoggled you into casting me. Um, <laughs> um, because I remember going to I'm that so audition. I'm so boondoggled. <laughs> uh, I just was so excited you were doing it because I just love silence on stage and like what happens when you do that. And so I was all psyched to do it. And I think I gave a really great audition, but like Timothy definitely gave a better audition. And so having... Timothy playing Jan. Yeah, I didn't realize there was some role jealousy there. Uh, I wouldn't call it role jealousy. I think that it is just there were so many of us that wanted to be a part of this, and I just uh, I just wasn't good enough to uh, to get the part. And I recognized that in the room. Uh, luckily, you know, you were auditioning for chemistry of the people that you were trying to figure out who would be the silent retreaters. So here's what I remember about the audition process. Um, I remember that we had we had you and uh, a couple of actors who were helping us with with readings because we were when we auditioned, we auditioned an entire season at one time. Right. And you would help us out on the other side of the table by reading scenes against the auditors who would who would come in. And when it came down to reading the other side of of this uh, this guru 
character. I think he's unnamed in the play, is he not? Yeah, he's, he's the teacher. He's the teacher. Um, there just came a point where we just started laughing and we're like, why are we even auditioning for this character anymore? Eric is nailing it. <laughs> well, one of the, the one of the, the uh, things that um, best best does descriptions at the very beginning of the script that gives a very kind of sense of who these people are, which you don't really get in the play, but like you have to act those things with certainty. And I just remember the thing that got me from the uh, script is uh, the accent is somewhere between affected and foreign. (laughs) And I just loved the idea of that. And so I just kind of jumped in with, just a ridiculous combination of 10 different accents I think I've done before and uh, or ever wanted to do. And, and you so I got me, to play that. And you showed me a clip. You're like, I'm, I, you remember of some TV show? Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> from Barry. <laughs> yeah. You're um, like, this is the accent I want to do. This is the accent. And, <laughs> and you know, I, I was I was interested because I played up the comedy I felt in the audition. But once we got into the rehearsal of the play. One of the things that I discovered is, uh, though I have been accused of loving the sound of my voice, (laughs) uh, I, I had never used it to act like this. And so there was a lot of, you know, what do I do when I am not, you know, I'm literally not on stage. I was sequestered in a supply closet in the theater with a monitor, connected to an eye in the sky, which had a slight delay. Can I interject though? Yeah. But remember, we didn't start you off in rehearsal that way. We were, we had you in the room in rehearsal because we needed the actors to be able to, to have a connection with you. Right. And, and you also needed to have a connection with the, those characters. Well, and I should, I should just point out too, that, that in the, in the production of the show, the conceit is that he is there. The actors can't, the, the, the actors, the characters can see him. The audience cannot. Right. He is on the other side of a room. He's presented as a voice to the audience, but the actors, the characters see him and react to him as if he is there. Yes. Yeah. I, you know, in, in interest, I think, Anne-Marie, of, you know, your anxiety is not the word, but your, uh, your investment in making sure that the actors weren't indicating or trying to imagine how to react, you very quickly you know, knew that I needed to be in the room facing them in the place where I would have been if I were actually on stage well, we to, had to, find, to get a sense yeah. of distance, <laughs> but also like who's reacting to what they got to see how I was behaving. Mm-hmm. So, and it also grounded me in making sure that I was a human being and not just some disembodied comic relief. Uh, and that became very important because though he is funny, like the, his monologue at the end is like one of my favorite things I've ever done on stage. And playing a recorder is also one of the most <laughs> wonderful things well, I've ever done on stage. Well, don't just throw that out there. Talk about that a little bit. What was that monologue about? And 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 segue that into uh, about the recorder moment, because there may be some people that haven't seen the show or don't remember it with the sort of details that you do. So what was it about that? First of all, describe that monologue and then tell me why it was so important. Eric, that monologue, I, I would cry on stage every single night before when we were getting up and you're doing that monologue because it's so beautiful it's like all of the all of the crap that everyone went through during the play and all the times when the teacher was just like so bizarre and weird and funny and different things then all of a sudden there's this beautiful moment where it's complete honesty and uh it's like it's like 
the veil opening up or something or like the the curtains opening and you see the sunrise. I don't know. It was just an amazing moment. So. Well, I think that uh, I that's yeah, I think it was amazing. I'm glad to hear that you were able to connect with it. I think that it's a testament to the writing uh, because there's a uh, things that are set up in his very first monologue, which is hilarious, which sets up, I think, for the audience, this idea that this guy is a complete faker charlatan because it's so absurd and he's talking about things like this metaphor of a frog going to a well and uh and i just remember reading it and you get to this this final monologue which is about being alone but being alone connected to everyone and i just was like man this is my philosophy of life do you remember what we did with the audience too in that moment not only were the characters resonating with your what the words that you were saying about being connected but we also turned up the house lights on everybody uh, in the audience. And the way the seating was set up, it was alley seating. So the audience was facing each other. So at that moment, everybody, not only in the play, but outside the play peering in, we all became connected as as one breathing being. And in that tennis court setting, I mean, one side of the audience is literally facing the other side. So when the lights come up, they're forced to look at each other. They, they have no choice but to look across the, the stage space and see the audience on the other side and being told that, that they are alone, but not alone, alone, but connected, and that we are all one. And thing. I remember loving watching the audience uh, and during that moment. And I remember a specific couple like being just blown away by the, the majesty and the, the grandness of that idea. Uh, it, it was always something I looked forward to every night. Yeah. I, I loved that moment because, um, and it's something that we explored in the buzz with quite a few audience members. Uh, but the play as a play is a very untraditional play. And so at the very beginning in this ridiculous monologue that I do, I think that that's where we start to train the audience that this is not a traditional play. There is not a traditional narrative. And by the end, I feel like, like you say, everybody starts to feel their connection with not only the characters that they have been watching, that they've been listening to, beyond the the convention of regular dialogue by that point we are all when something happens listening more carefully and i think yeah to watch from my eye in the sky to watch audience members connect to other audience members and to realize that we are all people in a room we're not audience and actors we're all human beings in a room and so just you know, this, this mantra throughout the monologue of you are not alone, but finding, you know, this wonderful moment of explaining our connectivity. And that last line was, well, you are not alone. Oh, <laughs> well, but that, 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 just, I'm emotional thinking about it. Right that now. leads me to ask uh, you, Eric, um, in that we, we've always talked about, you know, the final member of the cast is that audience that, that comes in and, yeah. and contributes to how the show is, uh, the energy of the show is actually expressed. And that's, you know, very easy for people who are on stage with the audience right there. Do you, did you feel, um, did you find a way to connect to the audience in a way, even though you were physically removed from them and 
could only sort of communicate over the, the speakers and the microphone? Well, I, it, my connection with the audience was just as challenging as connecting with the actors because it wasn't a high-definition camera. It was not. <laughs> I, I remember that clearly. And, and as I mentioned, it was a bit on a delay. Uh, and so I would, I would do it with my headphone monitors half on and half off so that I could try and hear some of the squeak in the seats and the, the laughter and, and things like that, because that's part of what you play with. Um, I remember early on, we had the notion of, well, maybe I'm just not seeing the audience, but I'm really delighted that you guys came to the conclusion that I needed to see everything. And so beforehand I'd see where people would walk in. It was a robot, uh, camera so i was able to turn it around and see where people were coming in so i got to see the full cast of 30 that were coming in or 90 that were coming in depending on the size of the house or whatever and uh and it was so with that i had a sense of the community but also the separation i felt like was really important for the character of the teacher because the teacher was so separate, which I thought was interesting in the buzz. And I always bristled at this. There were so many people in the buzz who would say the other six characters had an arc, but the voice, no, he didn't have an arc. And I was like, dude, Not true. his arc is one of the most important in the whole thing, because I think that he is inauthentic at the beginning of the he play. He was struggling with his relationship with his father. Exactly. Yeah. And you just get snippets of that and you you hear him grappling with emotion. And I think that a lot of times that that both introduced the, you know, what we were about to see in, in this silent scene or in the in the silent retreat scenes that followed and preceded. But like Oh, the idea that he didn't have an arc and that he gets to this place, which is kind of kind of complete, but also like I think at the end, there is as much question about whether or not the teacher actually did grow as there is the question about these six people who obviously had a moment of revelation. But I think the question is, does that moment of revelation carry back into a real world. But there is something interesting that an audience who is so invested in the people that they could see did not have a sense of that same investment for someone that they couldn't, which I think that there's something that carries on into our real world about the people we see and the people we don't, the people we listen to and the people we don't. I, I That was something that I took away from. Well, I, I also think there's a, there's a certain skepticism about um, the motivations of, of this gentleman who talks about it from the very beginning, he lays out a series of rules. Uh, well, he starts off with a very esoteric um, kind of bullshit <laughs> story, very woo uh, li lists a, uh, a lengthy bit of rules and then makes it clear that there are no refunds, you right. know, that, that, that should you decide <laughs> to leave, there will be no refunds. And so I think there's a skepticism that sets in on him. I think he's from the very beginning um, set up to be a, uh, uh, Suspicious. He's, he's, he's suspect. His character is suspect. So the the transition you're talking about, though, Eric, I think, you know, we see him in, in that role. But then we discover there's a very comedic moment in the show where everything's supposed to be completely silent. He's told everyone no cell phones. But then his own cell phone rings. <laughs> and he says, I'm sorry, I have to answer this. And he goes off and he answers. And he comes back. And it happens again. And the, the phone rings again. And then he betrays to the group. He admits that his father is actually dying. And that he is going through this process of of watching his father 
slowly fade away. And uh, he doesn't recognize you anymore. He he um, speaks nonsense words to you now, and you're having to watch this. And it's I think it affects his the way he teaches the rest of this course. And I think that's the arc you're talking about is the the discovery that perhaps what he is teaching in air quotes all along is not complete bullshit. Yeah, I. Uh, and and that's something that that working with you, Anne Marie, that I think that we came to, um, you know, when Bess, uh, when when she, like I had mentioned, she at the beginning gives this very specific description of the background and and a description of the the kind of story of each individual character. Except there's not really much there for the teacher. I think that's uh, by design, though, because oh, all of the other characters don't have as much dialogue as you do. Your your backstory gets revealed through the dialogue, much like in a more traditional play. So she had to put all of those character descriptions to help the characters start the play. And let me just say these are these are these are long page and a half, yeah. two pages long character yes. descriptions where normally in a show you'll you'll hear Hamlet, thirty five. Prince of Denmark. Right. That's all you get for him. And right. then, but you, in this you, story, you'll hear their backstory, their relationship their, their relationships, issue. and yeah. a long, 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 a lot of stuff that's not even extant in the play. You don't get to see a lot of this stuff. It's just there in the in no, the. No, but they have to operate from that particular place in order to make choices. Sure. And so usually, what an actor will do is they will mine the text in order to come to understand who their character is. But if there is no text, no dialogue. Right. Right. No dialogue. Then they would be making things up that were random and so she needed to be able to unite everybody in, in this story so she had to give a detailed character descriptions so well this brings me back to a question i had about mm -hmm. the the process for and and this is for both of you dean and eric and for you emory too is that normally you know in a rehearsal process you open the script up and you start your you do your first read through you read through the play you read through the dialogue and and some of the stage directions to get a sense of what it is you're you're you know, taking on. And then, you know, you, you work on those scenes, you work on those, those bits of dialogue, you create those, those moments. How do you start? I mean, even starting with a read through, did you start this process with a, a read through of the, of the play or, or. Uh, what we did, we didn't normally what APF productions do is we sit down for a week of table work and we really try and, you know, find those moments while we're in, in our seats. But you couldn't do that with this. So we I think we had one read through. And when the stage directions pertain to a, a particular character, that actor who was playing Judy, she would read those stage directions. Yeah, like there's a lot of um, very detailed stage directions of what each mm -hmm. character is doing, how we would do it. That's what rehearsal was about. But there was lots of stuff for us to to um, start with and when like you said when we read it if it was us you know Judy does XYZ I would read it as Judy and that was very interesting as a first approach hmm. just to in our mind we were kind of like able to stick with the storyline uh, in that way I think in a, it was very helpful before we started um, doing anything physical to yeah. do that. And I remember just because of scheduling, my actual first physical rehearsal was actually with you and Valerie as, as Joan and Judy. And we crafted something and then we didn't get back to that for quite some time. But uh, what made me feel the most comfortable just in terms of staging was working on the scenes where you were all involved. Uh, and, and the teacher was also involved because the teacher, uh, 
There was things prescribed in the text that would dictate your behavior. And so that was easier on me uh, as a director in order to stage and craft those moments. And I do have to say, normally it takes me about, if it's a really long play like August Osage County, that, that show took me about three weeks to stage. I feel like it took us the whole five weeks to stage the play. I've never spent so much time staging a, a play because normally in a play that has a lot of dialogue, you go from one point to the next point and you let the dialogue carry you. But I had to craft every single bit of silence, which was labor intensive. Uh, and by the time I would get home from rehearsal, I was so exhausted <laughs> because I would have to focus so uh, in, in such a different way to be like, is that physical story? Is that is it is it clear? You can't say you from from in silence, you would say but it's not really silence. I mean, there's a lot happening to suggest that it's just. Oh, well, there was a lot of noise in the yeah. show in terms of like breath and things falling. And there was a lot of actual noise in the show. But in terms of them not being able to talk and no text or dialogue in the show uh, that I couldn't go from uh, one story uh, moment to the next. So like just, you do in, in terms of, in terms of telling story now, are there differences in, in telling story through just solely through action and, and, and telling story through dialogue? Can there be, for example, can there be pauses like I've just taken mm -hmm. in dialogue? Can there be pauses in, yes. in just <laughs> silent movement? I know what you're movement? getting at. Um, so one of the discoveries that I made doing this particular show, just like actors like to pause when they have dialogue because they want to get on their voice and they want to get on their breath, they'll, they'll talk, pause, talk, pause, talk, pause, talk. And right. And towards the end, the, the director comes in and, you know, cleans that all up so that um, it doesn't devalue moments, right? If you, if there's a pause, um, if there are pauses throughout the text, then it makes everything meaningful, which makes nothing meaningful. <laughs> so what I was finding also in this show is that there would be bits of action and then a pause and bits of act the actors were pausing <laughs> in the silence. And so I had to go through their physicality and pull out all of the pauses in, in their physical action, which I found fascinating. And I didn't know that that was going to happen until I was in the process because I'd never directed a play like this before. Were you guilty of that, Dina? Was that part of your, your shtick? Were you pausing in the... Remember? Well, I don't I don't know. I think that our instinct is to be sure that everything is clear. And one way of right. being sure that everything is clear is to make sure that maybe you think about a moment and you think mentally it has ellipses around it, you know, or, or brackets. And so one way of doing that is by coming to a stop and then starting the next thing. And I do think that we had to keep some of the pauses because you can't just go at the same speed the whole time. There have to be demarcations and, and, and changes in pacing and all that. But but Anne-Marie was so good with with making sure that we had the ones in that that gave the meaning and not ones that just were like slowed everything down and didn't give meaning. You know what I mean? Because there has to be a shape. Mm -hmm. But it, if the shape is the same shape the whole time, that's not going to work. And if this, there is no shape, it's not going to work. It's got to be the shape that's really going to bring those moments out. When, yeah, just like yeah. in in a play with dialogue, yeah. the plays have rhythm, 
Right. right. So there, there was also a rhythm in this show. Some moments were slow and some moments were fast and, you know, some moments were, were silent and still. And so uh, even though there wasn't dialogue in order to to punctuate that, uh, the, the play has rhythms. Uh, and I will say as a as the guy who I, I was at a lot more rehearsals than I expected to be, which I was delighted by. But I got to watch the development of that. And some of the development of that was, you know, m- many of the scenes are kind of many scenes that are integrated on the stage. And you need to be careful about where you were drawing the audience's focus. And so I think that when we initially started that process, what I saw was actors trying to make sure that the other actors had their moment and we'll move on to the next moment. And so what I got to see develop was this kind of kinesthetic sense of people on stage, uh, which is really exciting to see because, you know, with, with dialogue, you can hear your cue with this, you kind of had to sense your cue because you weren't looking directly at someone. You had to have the soft focus. And so it was exciting to see that develop for the actors on Yeah, on that scene in particular that I'm thinking of that you were probably thinking of too is at the end of night one mm-hmm. when everyone is in their room. So there's like, were there three or four? There are three separate cabins. Three, three cabins, three cabins yeah. with two people in each cabin. And then there were simultaneously three scenes going on, one in each cabin. But we had to um, choreograph it in such a way that we that the audience could see highlighted the right moments in each of those scenes. But they were all dovetailing simultaneously and it wasn't like you froze like one group yeah froze, we didn't freeze and the other continued we're like, should we freeze and we're like I no know, we're not gonna freeze. Freeze. I never felt no. as much like I was yeah. the conductor I'd yeah. be like okay now this is happening and then I, I just felt like it was constantly um ebbing and flowing and I had to I had to control the focus with movement breath and and um sounds that you would make within uh within that world without dialogue. And that was the 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 scene that we spent the most time on. It was on. very complex. And the lighting too in the end the lighting helped a little bit. It would highlight a little bit, but mostly we had to keep we had to feel everything that was happening in all three rooms at the same time. And um it was highly choreographed and yet it had to feel absolutely completely realistic fl- full of flow spontaneous and, yeah spontaneous. how do you go about creating an ensemble like that emory if i mean usually there's the the emotionality of of you know script work and and dialogue and big emotional moments would well, you help. want me to talk about how we created that or how i create a, an ensemble itself well in this show specifically i mean you started the, the very first rehearsal that you haven't mentioned yet is you uh-huh. took everyone on a retreat did you not oh yes yeah everyone <laughs> But one, <laughs> which, which we'll talk about because I was actually invited to this. But anyway, yes, uh, I'll jump in. So on I, uh, in my research of doing the show, I thought, oh, I should go on a silent retreat. Uh, but by the time I could do that, m- many of the retreats that I wanted to go on were booked. So I thought, OK, well, I'll just create my own retreat. So uh, <laughs> so we cleared out the living room. We have a nice wood floor here and we did a, a, a bit of yoga. We had a friend come in who did a meditation. I had another friend who is an, was an Eagle Scout and he took us on a hike. And then we finished the, our silent retreat with a vegan meal. And then everybody was required 
to clean up together as a team without speaking. And from start to finish, from the, the meditation, the yoga, to the end of the dishwashing, it was all in silence. All in silence. And, and that, was the course, uh, that was over the course of how long? About six or seven hours. Uh, fascinating experience. Because when you take away a sense, it's true. Like if you take the ability away to speak and not hear the sound of your own voice, all of the other sounds become way more heightened. And I also felt like when I would peer into other people's cars as we were driving to Red Rock, I could almost sense what they were feeling in a more, in a richer way because I had taken all the focus off myself. Uh, uh, and that was my that was my own personal experience. Uh, I know that there were some people on the retreat who were struggling with their own personal issues, and those things became more heightened. Uh, I know uh, Valerie, who played Joan. She's a Native American. She felt closer to her dad uh, during that experience. So, uh, you know, I don't want to speak for uh, what Dina's experience was, but well, those were some of the things that well, I remember. What, what, what was your experience, Dina? Well, I think I've told, I may have told you guys this story, but long ago when I was in my early twenties, I had a vocal injury and I had to um, stop singing and speaking for uh, a long time. I had to go on like three months of total vocal rest. Holy cow. Um, three, did you say three months? Three months. Yes. I didn't talk on the phone for four months. I didn't speak one word for six weeks. Then I spoke almost not at all for another six weeks. Anyway, long story short, so I, I found this, um, and it, I came out on the other side and retrained, and then it, it, it was it was all worth it. It was like, luckily, I had a good outcome from that. Um, and so I developed a very intense kind of special relationship with not speaking. Yeah. Like I, I actually find it very healing to not speak. And I get a little bit... Um, like I find that this sort of American desire to just talk incessantly very tiring to me. <laughs> so for me, that that experience of not speaking was it was not as hard as I thought it would be. Um, so that, some of that could just be my temperament, but also because it had this this healing um, weird healing voyage thing that happened. Um, Whenever I'm in a situation where it's like no talking, I feel something very grounding. For me, it's a great experience. I like it a lot. So it, it wasn't traumatic. It didn't leave a traumatic re, uh, response to silence for you. No, it's not luckily, like you're... I think that's because the outcome was good. You know, yeah. if it hadn't worked, it could, could have been a completely different relationship to that, to silence, you know. And Eric, you're saying everyone went on this retreat, but one, and that one was you, I imagine. Yeah, uh, I was invited on it. Uh, and I, I, my recollection, I could be wrong about this, but my recollection, Amory, is that you really wanted me to be a part of it. And I think that I manufactured a, oh, I'm not feeling well, I can't do it. Uh, but I thought it was actually really important for me not to be a part of it because I had a sense that it would be something really profound. And the teacher, I felt especially even just the, the work that you and me, you, you, you and I, you and me, anyway, uh, Emory that we, we had Harvard, taught. ladies and gentlemen, uh, Harvard <laughs> university. <laughs> <laughs> you, and I was an English major. Anyway, uh, <laughs> my mom was an English teacher. 
So uh, if they're not, they're probably not listening to this. Nobody's listening to this. So you're good. Yeah. Well, for your one listener, uh, <laughs> no, um, uh, you know, we, we had talked about his remove and, and, and we still hadn't had a sense about like, does he think this authentically or not? But he was definitely dealing with his own narrative. And I felt like, you know, it'd be interesting to set up a separation. I felt like there was a risk because I felt like that would isolate me more as a member of the cast. Um, but I, I also felt it was just really interesting for me to not have the profound experience. And I do feel like that helped to the credit of the cast and everyone I was very concerned that I, especially knowing that I'd be in a supply closet for the uh, full play, that I wouldn't be part of the ensemble. But I felt like the team, the full team, the full complement of uh, uh, everyone doing it, full complement of everyone doing it made sure that I was part of the ensemble. And I'm wondering, maybe this is for you, Dina, uh, like there was a concerted effort I felt to make sure that I felt part of the team. And I'm wondering if some of that, wondering if some of that came from your experience on that day or like where that came from just beyond you're all generous people, but not every actor is generous. <laughs> I think Anne-Marie picked such a great team that there wasn't there. There's no one who wasn't on the pay, the same page in that ensemble, I don't think, even though some of us had different backgrounds than others in terms of the the uh, the intention of being together and creating that thing together, even though you're you had your own completely different kind of role in the script. I think we all felt so connected to each other. Yeah. It was just remarkable. Well, there there is something there is something removed about the teacher. I mean, he serves as an authority figure. He he chastises and rewards and and I won't say bullies, but he does. You know, oh, I'd, uh, I'd say he bullies. Bullies a little yeah, bit. There's a yeah, few well, moments where he bullies. So there is. I think there is a, a a separation that is important. So that I think that decision was probably a pretty good one to exclude yourself from a, a sort of togetherness exercise. That um, yeah, makes sense to me. It seems like a pretty good decision. What do you think, Emery? I think he would have been fine. Yeah, he would have been fine. Okay. So, well, that, well, that, well, this brings me to my my last sort of my last couple of questions now, just about the nature of the the idea of the show itself of being one of of um, you know, and a lot of the buzzes. I have to say, I was honestly really surprised at the percentage of people who had gone through some sort of retreat or self-help seminar or some experience like this. It was a high percentage of audiences that could really relate to the very specifics of what, of what we're doing. Now, this was a bit of, there was a bit of a, um, a stretch with this uh, show. I think, I think she makes it a little bit silly in some aspects, but it was pretty true to the notion of, of, you know, no speaking, no, no cell phones, no whatever. And that is a, that is a popular self-help retreat technique, right? So uh, there was, I, I think there was some danger. I mean, in looking back at how many of the audience had, had gone through these things, I think there was some danger in um, presenting something that was mocking this process or was a parody of, of uh, a self-help retreat. And I think that you guys were pretty successful in not doing that, but there's, there's still that fine line between, um, uh, you know, finding the humor 
in people suffering, trying to, to, to make themselves better, trying to be better people, that there's a, a danger in mocking that and coming across as, as, as cruel. Was that something that you were aware of at all during the production? I don't really think the word is mock, though. I think she's just highlighting what we all go through. And when you highlight it in a certain way, in, in a certain style, it becomes comedy. Yeah, for me, it was more like tragic comic, if yeah. you will. I mean, mm-hmm. because I didn't feel, I agree with Anne-Marie, I didn't feel that the script was mocking anybody, but it definitely was bringing out when things are uh, painfully funny, <laughs> funny, painful, poignant, absurd. Like there's a lot of really nice absurdist moments that then flip and become poignantly beautiful. And I definitely remember a few buzzes where some people got a takeaway that we were, that there was more mocking about the teacher, but I did not feel that production was doing that myself. Well, and I I was just going to say, I feel like part of that is that, you know, that point of view that all this is a bunch of, can I curse? Sure. That all this is a bunch of bullshit. Uh, That point of view is represented in the script and on stage. And uh, like, I think that Dina, that was point of view of your character walking in. Yeah, definitely. She was completely into the, oh God, I'll go do this horse shit because I love my partner. But, you know. So I felt like that was represented in the room, which is, you know, the self-awareness of that. And also to watch your character go through the arc of finding something, even if this guy is full of shit. Every character found something in the silence, which just, mm-hmm. I mean, like that, that to me is the experience of being in an audience. So let's just review. We have two of the, the, the characters here, but there were six characters, uh, students in this play. One of them had suffered a, a horrible rock climbing accident, which led to a divorce because his wife was sleeping with his sister and he was financially ruined through identity theft. We had uh, a woman who had gone through a string of um, abusive relationships and was in fact in the middle of an abusive relationship while she was in this seminar making cell phone calls to this uh, abusive boyfriend. We had a man who we find out at the end of the show doesn't speak a word of English, uh, but who has lost a son at a very early age, a preteen son who was killed in a in a terrible accident. We had your character, uh, uh, Judy, who is suffering from cancer with her partner who is going through that process with her. And they are probably going to um, either stay together or part based upon the, the end of this um, retreat. And then finally, we had a, um, a, a yogi, a very uh, uh, popular, popular, yoga popular yoga teacher who was also involved in a string of um, extramarital affairs. So th- these were all people looking for some type of help. And to, to make fun of any of those, I mean, those are some pretty, some pretty deep uh, issues that all of these characters are dealing with. So to, make, to even hint at making fun of those was a real risk. Um, I assume you took all of those problems absolutely seriously and their attempt to try and find solace in this, in this uh, silent retreat. You took that all very seriously. Absolutely. Uh, one of the things, and I, I think this is something that your character actually went through was um, you invested in another person, Jan, in the show, you had this wonderful connection with this person. Right. A nonverbal, non-verbal. amazing connection where we, we had a scene together where we both, yeah. 
Yeah, where yeah. you both smoked some pot. And smoked some pot. He showed me his son. I figured out his son was dead, and we had a major... Ate a sandwich. Major connection. Ate a sandwich. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I, well, I think, no, I think one of the, 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 the cap on that moment, too, is that you end up, you don't you don't have sex, but you end up sleeping together. You spend the night together sort yeah, of cuddled. Yeah, we have a, a very intimate in contact. Um, connection. Yeah, okay, I, I interrupt you. Yeah, yeah. yeah uh, but what I think is most interesting about the exchange or or is that when we don't hear people speak, we pass certain judgments about them. And we do that all the time. Like if we're at the grocery store and we see somebody from afar, we think, oh, well, this person is this, this, and this. And it's based on their clothing, based on their gait, based on their expressions. We just make these assumptions. And then as soon as they open their mouths and we hear their voices, that completes a a, a stronger picture in, in terms of their identity. And so your particular character had this strong connection with this character, Jan, and you made all of these assumptions that after the retreat that you would go off and you would be friends and you would have this amazing connection and it might help you with your cancer and blah, 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 blah. I'm maybe putting words in your mouth. But then you come to find out that you don't even, both of you don't even speak the same language. So you wouldn't be able to communicate anyway. It was easier to communicate in the retreat than it would be after the retreat was over. And I think that is one of the main messages in, in, in the play is, is the judgment that we make about people uh, in, 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 in silence. <laughs> Silence. I think that that's, I mean, like, what do you say to that? But like, yep. Um, you know, one of the things that, yeah, I do agree. Like one of the great things that came up in the buzz was people's kind of debate about whether or not this was, you know, this guy was a charlatan is that I, it, I felt like, and and I felt like it developed in the conversation in the buzz is that that was a starting point, but then to debate whether or not it was helped us discover that even in an absurd situation, we can have an authentic experience. Exactly right. And I mean, it was one of those great things that even like one of my biggest discoveries in the whole play happened after opening night in the buzz when Somebody talked about, so like in, in the setup of the play, like you said, it's tennis court. And so, uh, in the first scene of the play, you have the six actors at one end and you have a speaker at the very other end out of which comes my voice. And, uh, an audience member pointed out that she spent like the first three quarters of my opening monologue just staring at the speaker. There were six actors on the other side of the stage, but because I had the words, they were looking at the speaker. And then, so I just then kept on looking at the audience and I was like, audiences kept on doing that. And, and so just like, I I feel like, uh, the, the, the writing sets up the idea that this guy might be a charlatan. I think that it indulges kind of an expectation that these kinds of things are kind of full of shit. Just like that, the way we go to theater is to listen and engage in dialogue. And, and so we have to restructure just like these characters are restructuring and reimagining the way that they think about themselves and the people around them. So audiences were, were 
being challenged to think of theater in a new way. Uh, you know, usually in a piece of theater, you have a, you know, one solid linear narrative, whereas even just the way it's staged, like there are multiple narratives that you can follow and you have different perspectives because you're not only watching the play, you're watching the people across the way, watch the play. And so you are going through the process of learning how to look and listen at things differently so that by the end, you, you know, best the, the the script has taught you a different way of looking at theater and that theme kept on coming up and i started to insert in the buzz a little bit of like so how many of you were looking at my list? uh <laughs> well, I, because I, was, I thought it was amazing and what was great is that there were audience members that were like i'm going to look at plays differently now i was like dude that's so cool well and i think the part of the the what what ended up happening to a great deal was that you would see audiences forced to sort of sit forward mm. and really focus and pay attention because they couldn't just sit back and listen. And we're so used to just letting the words pour over us and then yeah. going through the, well, he said that very loudly. He must be angry. Oh, he said that kind of suspiciously. He's a, he's a charlatan. And you couldn't really, you know, you, you can judge characters just based upon what they say. So this forced an audience to really sit forward and really watch and in some ways connect with the the action on stage in a way that we don't always do with with other types of theater i think well and i also do want to say like i think that that comes from the script but it is a credit like to the the entire production team and you and marie and what we were doing as an ensemble to embrace what the script was giving us and really kind of leaning into it which is why i found it so fascinating that i didn't discover this stuff really until the buzz but I felt like, you know, you, uh, Anne-Marie, and the, the design team and the actors, like, with full commitment to the script, let people discover that. And I was like, man, this script is amazing. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm impressed with it, too. Well, I, th I think that's, I think that's uh, about it. I think we've covered a lot of the, the acting challenges, the directing challenges that we wanted to talk about um, to, today. Emery, do you have any final thoughts before we, we say goodbye to... Uh, Eric and Dina? Ocean. <laughs> <laughs> that ocean was the ocean is the last word. The last word of small mouth sounds is uttered by uh, Ian, who is a character who does not speak a word of English until that very last moment where he he says ocean. And I think in that in that moment, he's summing up the lesson um, in his mind of what he has taken away from the from the uh, exercise. Is that right? Yeah, that we're all out to sea, and it's all very challenging, and we're all in this together. But we're all in this together. I felt like Jan really understood the the profound lesson of of the retreat, and he was the one that didn't speak English. Yeah, which I found to be wonderful and ironic. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Eric, Dina, thanks for coming and chatting with us about this. So I know it was a, a, a while ago, and your memories still seem pretty fresh and, and useful. Yeah, it had a lot of impact on me. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. same here. Thank Yay. you so much. Yay. Yay! Thanks for doing the play because it was a a treat for Las Vegas. Believe me. Yeah. Thank oh, you for yeah. like Taking going, the risk. going mm -hmm. for thing that's not safe. Yeah, it's like, considered that's great theater. Is don't do it's an safe. impossible play. Mm -hmm. Like Bess has been interviewed. And it's called. It's called. 
that's categorized as an impossible play. Well, she's been categorized as a playwright who really enjoys creating impossible plays and doing impossible yeah. work. Yeah. So. yeah. Thanks, guys. And that's Behind the Buzz, a continuing conversation from a public fit theater company. This was episode five, and I want to thank Eric Amblan and Dean Emerson again, two of Las Vegas's brightest theater jewels, for joining us today with their remembrances and stories about the creative process. And Emery, I want to thank you too, since you helmed this production pretty much solo. Thank you for taking us back through that process as well. And, and I think I need to credit uh, some of the background noise you may have heard to Maggie and Enzo, our cuddly, if somewhat over enthusiastic dogs here at the headquarters of a public fit theater company international. Uh, if you enjoy these conversations, please take a moment to subscribe. There are two more episodes left in this inaugural season. In the meantime, if you have any questions, uh, comments, or suggestions for upcoming episodes, drop us an email at behind the buzz at a public Your suggestions will help guide us as, as we continue to examine our work continuing this unending conversation about the arts, about theater, and about you know, about our own lives. Behind the Buzz is a product of a public fit theater company in association with Giant Leap Industries. Adam Paul, director. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you soon. Bye. Bye-bye. of Giant Leap Industries.